Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 17. And we will read the whole chapter, but we're going to focus on the, the first five verses, essentially. John 17, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that, you may know, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours." And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled." But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father. Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these 
have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So these are the final words of Jesus before they make it to that garden and he's arrested. And so chapters essentially 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are those words that Jesus spoke to his men the night before he was crucified. We've spent a lot of time on those words. And now at the approach of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss, Jesus turns to prayer. He finishes off his sermon with an extensive prayer. From exhortations, right, to his men about his departure, the coming Holy Spirit, the access that they have themselves to the Father in prayer, Uh, the coming persecution that they were going to endure. Um, He's now led to commit these men and all subsequent generations of the church to God in prayer. He preached and now he prays. And this prayer of Jesus is not merely for the apostles and the church, but in his prayer He reveals something to us about the relationship between uh, himself and his father. Really, that's the first section. The father glorifies the son, and the son glorifies the father. And we'll, we'll try to dive into that in a way that made sense to me and, and hopefully um, follows the scripture. Prayer can be broken down this way. One through five, Jesus prays for himself, in a sense. And then six through 19, Jesus is praying for the immediate apostles that are right around him. And then 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all who become Christians based upon the word that the apostles uh, laid down to us. So all subsequent generations of the church. So he's praying for the church in all times. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but notice Jesus' posture when he prays, right? We can blow over such things, but posture is often mentioned when we come to the topic of prayer. He does not bow his head or close his eyes. He actually lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays. Now, perhaps that ought to be... um, you know, ought not to be a prayer, a pattern for us, but um, but what I often point out in Scripture is there's no uh, command, there's no um, command that tells us to close our eyes when we pray. Do you know that? I mean, we just, there's nothing. There's nothing about closing your eyes when you pray. Uh, We do it, I mean, we do it for a good reason. I do it so I'm not distracted, right, just by commotion around me. It it helps me to focus. I think that's that's why we do it. It's also humbling to bow your head and close your eyes before you go into the presence of God, so to speak. But 
I think we generally, we close our eyes in order to be, uh, to concentrate. But again, there's no example or command of such a posture in Scripture. Additionally, we bow our heads so as to take a posture of humility. Again, that's, that's good. But here, Jesus lifts up his head and puts his eyes upward as he prays. You know, maybe raising his hands, it doesn't say, but he's, he's looking upward. And Calvin makes this observation about Jesus' posture. He writes, his posture was an indication of uncommon ardor and vehemence. For by this attitude, Christ testified that in the affections of his mind, he was rather in heaven than on earth. So that leaving men behind him, he conversed very familiarly with God. And so he's, he's getting as close to God as he can in his posture. And, of course, it's God speaking with God. And so there's a familiarity there that we will never have in our prayers, but he has. And so he's lifting his head and looking up. And so as has been the case through his entire life, his incarnation, Jesus puts his mind upon his Father both in prayer and in the work he did at the Father's behest. He lived always to glorify his Father. That, was, that is the summary of his work. He lived to glorify his Father. He, his mind was always on what would my Father have me do? What has the Father given me to do? How can I fulfill the Father's will? His prayers were made continuously to his Father his obedience, the things that Jesus accomplished, his works, his obedience was done out of love for his Father. His whole life, his whole life as the incarnate Son of God was to serve his Father and to fulfill his Father's will. Now, the first thing that Jesus asks for is that his Father might glorify him so that he may advance the glory of the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, how would the Father glorify the Son? How was that prayer fulfilled? You know, how was that prayer fulfilled? The hour that he is speaking about is his death. The thing that many religions despise about Christianity or despise about Jesus himself is his death, right? How can, how can your hero die? And yet here Jesus is describing it as proof of the, the Father glorifying the Son. Uh, was there glory in Christ's death? Heaps and mounds of it. Right? Heaps and mounds of glory. Sin is atoned for. Sinners have been reconciled to God the Father through the death of Jesus Christ. The curse has been removed, taken away. Right? The head of Satan has been crushed in the death of Jesus Christ. The blows of the Father that landed on the Son was the revealing of Christ's glory as the Savior of mankind, the mediator of a better covenant, right, enacted on better promises, the friend of sinner, sinners rescuing, right, sinners from destruction, 
the Son of God unreservedly obeying the Father, no matter the cost. So Christ's glory resounds from the cross. Christ's glory resounds in his death. Others may mock it, others may see it as weakness, but we know that it is glory, it is strength, it is so rich, it is so dense, right? That cross where Jesus died. Do you think about that? You know, the, the, do you think about the fact that, that, that your Savior died? I mean, we, we do get mocked. Christianity gets mocked because its hero died, but, but that's because they don't understand the unequaled glory that shows forth from that broken body and that shed blood. How powerful it was. They don't understand what it reveals about Christ's love. They don't understand what it reveals about his father's his father's integrity. And why do I say integrity? Because in the death of Christ, God is both just and the justifier. Right? And so God has full integrity. That he punishes sin, he is just and justifies, declares not guilty sinners, both of which are only possible because Jesus Christ was the sacrificial lamb of God. In my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Right? Hallelujah, what a Savior. All according to his Father's predetermined plan, and all those given to the Son by the Father, not everyone indiscriminately, or not everybody only potentially, let's note, but all those given to the Son by the Father, Receive eternal life through the plan accomplished and finished by Christ. And so his death is glorious. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, says Jesus. Thinking ahead to that cross and also back on all the miracles, all the sermons, all the works, all the healings, right? All the things he did in those short three years, all the law-keeping. All of that, he's looking back on that and he's saying, I glorified you. I've done it. I've done everything, every single thing, every jot and tittle of what you commanded me. I have done it. And then he makes this request. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, I want us to stop and think about that statement because it's sort of mind-boggling, right? When you start dealing with the Trinitarian relations and then you throw like time and space into that, you know, how are we supposed to understand such things? Well, thankfully, the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit who searches even the depths of God and we can come to grasp some of these things. But listen to that. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. These are incredible words. Who's, who's worthy to preach on them? Is he saying something like this? And perhaps this is the way that you've read this. I did what you asked of me 
Now, can I come home? Can I come home? Can we get back to the way things were before we created the material world and man and things got screwed up because of Adam? Can I come home? In, in other words, is there some self-interest in his prayer here? I want to get back to the way things were. Well, I think there is self-interest, but it's not the self-interest of a man who wants recognition. It's the self-interest of a perfect God who deserves all glory, right? That's, that's a different kind of self-interest. He can be self-interested without selfishness. We can't really much. Um, it is the self-interest of a glorious God who rightfully, not selfishly or vainly, has determined to orient all time and space and history to the praise of His glory, as we read in the book of Ephesians. And part of the history through which God brings rightful glory to Himself and His Son is that He saves sinners and has welcomed those sinners into His kingdom. Okay? But why does Jesus seem to long for a return to something he had before the world was? Why do we just think he wants to go back into this, this God, this Trinitarian vacuum that existed before there was anything else? Does he just want to get back there? Um, what, what, what is he speaking about? Well, I need, to, I need some help, right, because I'm daft, as the British say, and so I'm, I'm pulling from Calvin here, and Calvin says this, which I found helpful. He says this, he now declares that he, Jesus, desires nothing that does not strictly belong to him, but only that he may appear in the flesh such as he was before the creation of the world. Or, so to, or to speak more plainly, that the divine majesty which he had always possessed may now be illustriously displayed in the person of the mediator and in the human flesh with which he was clothed. So do you get what he's saying? He's, this is a true prayer to God. He's saying... Okay, we had glory together before I had a body. Now I'm always God-man. I'm always in the flesh. Can I return to that glory in the flesh? I want to go back to the way things were, but I'm carrying this flesh with me forever. Can I go back to this glory? How do we make sense of that? It's as if the Son is saying to the Father, do not let this human flesh, I have assumed, diminish our glory. But raise me up and seat me to your right hand, even as I have this body. Bavink summarizes the, the life of the second person of the eternal trinity like this. Now, now listen to this. He says, and I'm, I'm just standing on the shoulders of other people today, so... Lots of quotes. He was born a tiny child, weak and helpless. He needed food and drink. 
He was exhausted by travel and sat down by the well. Even in the performance of miracles, he was dependent on the faith of people. In the garden, he was strengthened by an angel. Only after the resurrection does he say that all power in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Then as mediator, he receives the glory he had beforehand with the Father as the Son and causes his human nature to share in it. That glory, that glory he had before the foundation of the world. He's now causing his human nature to share in that. By his resurrection, Christ also as a human being became Lord over the living and the dead, received a name that is above every name and power over all creatures. Okay, this, this is exciting to me. This should be exciting to you. I'm trying to make it exciting to you, okay? But this is amazing. It's amazing for what it means for you fleshly people with human bodies, right? The assumption that we often forget that lies behind Jesus' prayer here is that he has a human body since his incarnation. Always and forever. Before the incarnation, there was not a hypostatic union between the two natures, deity and humanity. After, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And now, as part of his exaltation, Jesus will have the glory he had with the Father eternally as a man. So the best I can summarize... The Son of God is praying to his Father, asking him to receive him as he is now. And that is not because there is anything evil about his flesh. There's nothing evil about his flesh. We don't want to be Gnostics, right, and make this separation between the Spirit and the flesh. There's nothing evil about that. He is not asking the Father to accept him despite the nasty flesh he now has. No, he is asking the Father to glorify him just as he always has, flesh and all. Flesh and all. In other words, there is no diminishment to Christ at all in that he will always have a body like you and me. There's no diminishment at all. He wants to go back to the exact same glory, and he has indeed gone back to the exact same glory he had before, and he's taken his body with him. Son of God was Lord of heaven and earth from the moment everything visible and invisible was created by the, the speech of, by his speech. He was Lord of everything, even when everything was just a thought in God's mind, if you'll allow me to speak in such a way. We're lisping here. The incarnation was humiliating to Jesus and a voluntary condescension on his part. He did empty himself and endure true weakness. After his resurrection and ascension, the result of the incarnation, the assumption of the human nature, does not in any way interrupt or disqualify him from reigning as the Lord of heaven and earth. Not at all. Before he had flesh, he had glory, and after he has flesh, he has the same glory as before. And so he's praying about that glory in our verses, in that 
in those, uh, especially in that fifth verse. Now, your mind ought to be exploding with awe at that, but also with incredible gratitude. Incredible gratitude, right? Now, I'm going to quote a long, longer passage of Calvin's Institutes because, again, um, I have to stand on shoulders here. Uh, please stick with me on this. I think it will be encouraging to your soul. Again, we're thinking about this prayer of the Son of God requesting that he return to the glory he had before the world was. And this passage from the Institutes helps me bring together the content of really all of John 13 through and into this prayer. Calvin says this, Now, having laid aside the mean and lowly estate of mortal life and the shame of the cross, Christ, by rising again, begins to show forth his glory and power more fully. Yet he truly inaugurated his kingdom only at his ascension into heaven. The apostle shows this when he teaches that Christ ascended, that he might fill all things. Despite the apparent contradiction, Paul shows that there is a remarkable agreement. For Christ left us in such a way that his presence might be more useful to us, a presence that had been confined to a humble abode of flesh so long as he sojourned on earth. Therefore, John, after he related the notable invitation, if anyone thirst, let him come to me, added that the Spirit had not yet been given to believers, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Lord himself also testified to his disciples, it is expedient for you that I go away, for I do not go away. If I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come. He consoles them for his bodily absence, saying that he will not leave them orphans, but will come to them again in an invisible but more desirable way. For they were then taught by a sure experience that the authority wielded and the power he exercised were sufficient for believers not only to live blessedly, but also to die happily. Indeed, we see how much more abundantly he then poured out his spirit how much more wonderfully he advanced his kingdom, how much greater power he displayed both in helping his people and in scattering his enemies. Carried up into heaven, therefore, he withdrew his bodily presence from our sight, not to cease to be present with believers still on their earthly pilgrimage, but to rule heaven and earth with a more immediate power. But by his ascension, he fulfilled what he had promised, that he would be with us even to the end of the world. As his body was raised up above all the heavens, so his power and energy were diffused and spread beyond all the bounds of heaven and earth. Right? His body was raised up, and as that God-man, his glory, his power is diffused through all of the creation, all of heaven and earth. And so that, was, that is part of what I was trying to say earlier. Before the incarnation, Jesus Christ ruled heaven and earth by virtue of being God. Now, after his incarnation, death and resurrection, he rules heaven and earth as the God-man. His body was raised up above all the heavens, and as the God-man, his power is demonstrated beyond even heaven and earth. Um, Calvin then draws some conclusions out of that glorious doctrine. 
that is contained in John 17.5. He, he says this, a short paragraph. From this, our faith receives many benefits. For it understands that the Lord, by his ascent into heaven, opened the way into the heavenly kingdom, which had been closed through Adam. Since he entered heaven in our flesh, as if in our name, it follows, as the apostle says, that in a sense we already sit with God in the heavenly places in him. So that we do not await heaven with a bare hope, but in our head, Jesus Christ, we already possess it. That's what's significant about him ascending as the God-man to sit to the right hand of the Father. He took all of his children with him. That union with Jesus Christ that believers through the new birth have, he takes us with him. When we come to the Lord's table, that's why we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus because we're lifted into the heavenlies, into his presence where we're already at, in him. And so the significance of Jesus entering into heaven with a human body cannot be underemphasized, right? The significance of the bodily resurrection and ascension and session of Christ is, is hugely important. Adam was cast out of the presence of God. Jesus, the second Adam, sits at the right hand of the Father. There is no more nearness to God than the right hand. Right? What a contrast. Do you get it? Remember what Calvin said, Since he entered heaven in our flesh, as if in our name, it follows, as the apostle says, that in a sense we already sit with God in the heavenly places in him. You already possess heaven in Jesus Christ. You are reigning on his throne in him. This ought to be wildly encouraging to you. That ought to be motivating to you to live in this world as if you've been taken out of this world. To live in this world as if you are a citizen of heaven. You know, seated to the right hand of the Father. You may be exiles in this world but this world is passing away, right? In the kingdom of Christ, though, that unseen but more substantial and eternal world, that, world, that kingdom, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with all the saints. You dwell in God's household. The man, Jesus Christ, has conquered the ruler of this world. He has descended into hell on the cross he has bound the strong man. He has atoned for sin. He has ascended to heaven, right? He sits to the right hand of the Father. He eternally shows to the Father the wounds on his body that led to our redemption. And heaven, therefore, lies open to us puny men. Yay! Can I get an amen? <laughs> oh my. Christ has gone there and he has returned to the same glory, right? He had that glory that he had before anything existed. 
And he has taken you there with him in his body, a body just exactly like yours and mine. Sin nature accepted. So dear brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice. You know, Christianity is not the social club. It's It's not just happy clappy like society. It's actually being taken up in Jesus Christ to be with the Father. It's a spiritual transaction. So there, you know, you think about it, and I mentioned self-interest before in this prayer. Is Jesus just like, I want to go home, Daddy? Is there self in, There is not really self-interest in this prayer of Christ at all. He is not praying this because he's tired of life this side of the incarnation. He's praying it because he knows that in his exaltation as the God-man, he carries us with him. You don't deserve this glory, and you have it. You don't deserve, we just don't deserve that kind of glory. And yet we have that in Christ. He carried us with him. And as always, we find out that Christ is selfless and filled with love and compassion for his creatures. Even in longing to return to the glory, he's got us in mind. It's stupendously selfless. It's inconceivably selfless. And so one last standing on the shoulders of somebody smarter than myself, John Owen, way smarter. (laughs) He wrote a little book called, it's not little, sorry, it's John Owen. Um, He wrote a book called The Glory of Christ. He takes up this theme in that book, and it's it's just a, a wonderful, thick, difficult, sometimes really clear meditation on the glory of Christ. But he says this, He it is who in himself has given us a pledge of the capacity of our nature to inhabit those blessed regions of light which are far above these visible heavens. He shows us in his ascension Right, He shows us in that glory that the human nature can ascend to heaven. Can go to, it, there's, it has that capacity. Here we dwell in tabernacles of clay that are crushed before the moth, such as cannot be raised so as to abide one foot breath above the earth we tread upon. The heavenly luminaries which we can behold appear too great and glorious for cohabitation, We are as grasshoppers in our own eyes in comparison of those gigantic beings. And they seem to dwell in places which would immediately swallow up and extinguish our natures. How then shall we entertain an apprehension of being carried and exalted above them all? To have an everlasting subsistence in place incomprehensibly more glorious than the orbs in which they reside. What capacity is there in our nature for such habitation? But of this the Lord Christ has given us a pledge in himself. Our nature in him is passed through these visible heavens 
and is exalted far above them. Its eternal habitation is in the blessed regions of light and glory, and he has promised that where he is, there shall we be forever. Forever. Oh, Jesus desired to return to the glory he had with the Father before the world was because he carried our nature there. And so, dear brothers and sisters, the ever-selfless Jesus Christ takes us along with him to share in the glory that alone belongs to him. That's amazing love. It's an amazing gift, right? So let this be your meditation today, brothers and sisters. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have been brought near to our Father in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love what you have done. We love your Son and his graciousness. We love his selfless glory sharing with creatures. What incredible perfection, what incredible humility. All to glorify you, Father, all in obedience to you. So, Father, I pray that we would rejoice. We would rejoice in what we have in our Savior through our union with him. We don't await things. We already have received such incredible glory. And we praise your name for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.